Section 19 of The Captain of the Pole Star and Other Tales by Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Cyprian Overbeck Wells, A Literary Mosaic, Part 2. Our hero, being considerably alarmed at this strange reception, lost little time in plunging into the sea again and regaining his vessel, being convinced that the worst which might befall him from the elements would be as nothing compared to the dangers of this mysterious island. It was as well that he took this course, for before nightfall his ship was overhauled, and he himself picked up by a British man-of-war, the Lightning, then returning from the West Indies, where it had formed part of the fleet under the command of Admiral Benbow. Young Wells, being a likely lad enough, well-spoken and high-spirited, was at once entered on the books as officer's servant, in which capacity he both gained popularity on account of the freedom of his manners and found an opportunity for indulging in those practical pleasantries for which he had all his life been famous. Among the quartermasters of the Lightning there was one named Jedediah Ankerstock, whose appearance was so remarkable that it quickly attracted the attention of our hero. He was a man of about fifty, dark, with exposure to the weather, and so tall that as he came along the tween decks he had to bend himself nearly double. The most striking peculiarity of this individual was, however, that in his boyhood some evil-minded person had tattooed eyes all over his countenance with such marvelous skill that it was difficult at a short distance to pick out his real ones among so many counterfeits. On this strange personage, Master Cyprian determined to exercise his talents for mischief, the more so as he learned that he was extremely superstitious, and also that he had left behind him in Portsmouth a strong-minded spouse, of whom he stood in mortal terror. With this object, he secured one of the sheep which were kept on board for the officer's table, and pouring a can of rumbo down its throat, reduced it to a state of utter intoxication. He then conveyed it to Ankerstock's berth, and with the assistance of some other imps, as mischievous as himself, dressed it up in a high nightcap and gown, and covered it over with the bedclothes. When the quartermaster came down from his watch, our hero met him at the door of his berth with an agitated face. "'Mr. Ankerstock,' said he, "'can it be that your wife is on board?' "'Wife?' roared the astonished sailor. "'Ye white-faced swab, what do you mean? "'If she's not here in the ship, it must be her ghost,' said Cyprian, shaking his head gloomily. "'In the ship? How in thunder could she get into the ship?' "'Why, master, I believe, as how you're weak in the upper works, do you see?' to as much think of such a thing. My pole is moored head and stern behind the point at Portsmouth, more than two thousand miles away. Upon my word, said our hero very earnestly, I saw a female look out of your cabin not five minutes ago. Ay, ay, Mr. Ankerstock, joined in several conspirators. We all saw her, a spanking-looking craft with a dead light mounted on one side. Sure enough, said Ankerstock, staggered 
by this accumulation of evidence. My Polly's starboard eye was doused forever by long Sue Williams of the hard. But if so be, as she be there, I must see her, be she ghost or quick, with which the honest sailor, in much perturbation, and trembling in every limb, began to shuffle forward into the cabin, holding the light well in front of him. It chanced, however, that the unhappy sheep, which was quietly engaged in sleeping off the effects of its unusual potations, was awakened by the noise of this approach, and finding herself in such an unusual position, sprang out of the bed and rushed furiously for the door, bleeding wildly and rolling about like a brig in a tornado, partly from intoxication and partly from the nightdress which impeded her movements. As Ankerstock saw this extraordinary apparition bearing down upon him, he uttered a yell and fell flat upon his face, convinced that he had to do with a supernatural visitor, the more so as the Confederates heightened the effect by a chorus of most ghastly groans and cries. The joke had nearly gone beyond what was originally intended, for the quartermaster lay as one dead and it was only with the greatest difficulty that he could be brought to his senses. To the end of the voyage he stoutly asserted that he had seen the distant Mrs. Ankerstock, remarking with many oaths that though he was too woundily scared to take much note of the features, there was no mistaking the strong smell of rum which was characteristic of his better half. It chanced shortly after this to be the king's birthday, an event which was signalized aboard the lightning by the death of the commander under singular circumstances. This officer, who was a real fair-weather Jack, hardly knowing the ship's keel from her ensign, had obtained his position through parliamentary interests, and used it with such tyranny and cruelty that he was universally execrated. So unpopular was he that when a plot was entered, into by the whole crew to punish his misdeeds with death, he had not a single friend among six hundred souls to warn him of his danger. It was the custom on board the king's ships that upon the birthday the entire ship's company should be drawn up upon deck, and that at a signal they should discharge their muskets into the air in honor of his majesty. On this occasion word had been secretly passed round for every man to slip a slug into his firelock instead of the blank cartridge provided. On the boatswain blowing his whistle, the men mustered upon deck and formed a line, whilst the captain, standing well in front of them, delivered a few words to them. When I give the word, he concluded, ye shall discharge your pieces, and by thunder, if any man is a second before or a second after his fellows, I shall trice him up to the weather-rigging. With these words he roared, Fire! On which every man leveled his musket straight at his head, and pulled the trigger. So accurate was the aim, and so short the distance, that more than five hundred bullets struck him simultaneously, blowing away his head and a large portion of his body. There was so many concerned in this matter, and it was so hopeless to trace it to any individual, that the officers were unable to punish any one for the affair, the more readily as the captain's haughty ways and heartless conduct 
had made him quite as hateful to them as to the men whom they commanded. By his pleasantries and natural charm of his manner, our hero so far won the good wishes of the ship's company that they parted with infinite regret upon their arrival in England. Filial duty, however, urged him to return home and report himself to his father, with which object he posted from Portsmouth to London, intending to proceed thus to Shropshire. As it chanced, however, one of the horses sprained his off foreleg while passing through Chichester, and as no change could be obtained, Cyprian found himself compelled to put up at the Crown and Bull for the night. Odds bodikins, continued Smollett, laughing, I never could pass a comfortable hostel without stopping, and so, with your permission, I'll even stop here, and whoever wills may lead friend Cyprian to his further adventures. Do you, Sir Walter, give us a touch of the Wizard of the North. With these words Smollett produced a pipe, and filling it at Defoe's tobacco-pot, waited patiently for the continuation of the story. "'If I must, I must,' remarked the illustrious Scotsman, taking a pinch of snuff. "'But I must beg leave to put Mr. Wells back a few hundred years, for of all things I love, the true medieval smack.' To proceed, then, our hero, being anxious to continue his journey, and learning that it would be some time before any conveyance would be ready, determined to push on alone, mounted on his gallant gray steed. Traveling was particularly dangerous at that time, for besides the usual perils which beset wayfarers, the southern parts of England were in a lawless and disturbed state which bordered on insurrection. The young man, however, having loosened his sword in its sheath so as to be ready for every eventuality, galloped cheerily upon his way guiding himself to the best of his ability by the light of the rising moon. He had not gone far before he realized that the cautions which had been impressed upon him by the landlord, and which he had been inclined to look upon as self-interested advice, were only too well justified. At a spot where the road was particularly rough and ran across some marshland, he perceived a short distance from him a dark shadow, which his practiced eye detected at once as a body of crouching men. Reining up his horse within a few yards of the ambuscade, he wrapped his cloak round his bridle arm and summoned the party to stand forth. "'What ho, my masters!' he cried. "'Are beds so scarce, then, that ye must hamper the high roads of the king with your bodies? Now by St. Ursula of Anpuhara, there must be those who might think that birds who fly at nights are after higher game than the moorhen or the woodcock. "'Blades and targets, comrades!' exclaimed a tall, powerful man, springing into the center of the road with several companions and standing in front of the frightened horse. "'Who is this swashbuckler who summons His Majesty's lieges from their repose?' "'A very soldado of truth!' Hark ye, sir, or my lord, or thy grace, or whatsoever title your honor's honor may be pleased to approve, thou must curb thy tongue play, or by the seven witches of Gambleside thou may find thyself in but a sorry plight.' 
I pray thee, then, that thou wilt expound to me who and what you are, quoth our hero, and whether your purpose be such as an honest man may approve of. As to your threats, they turn from my mind, as your catafly weapons would shiver upon my hauberk from Milan. Nay, Alan, interrupted one of the party, addressing him, who seemed to be their leader, this is a lad of metal, and such as one as our honest Jack longs for. But we lure not hawks with empty hands. Look ye, sir, there is game afoot, which it may need such bold hunters as thyself to follow. Come with us, and take a firkin of cannery, and we'll find better work for that glaive of thine than getting its owner into a broil and bloodshed. For, by my troth, Milan or no Milan, if my curdle axe do ring against that morion of thine, it will be an ill day for thy father's son. For a moment our hero hesitated as to whether it would best become his knightly traditions to hurl himself against his enemies, or whether it might not be better to obey their requests. Prudence, mingled with a large share of curiosity, eventually carried the day, and dismounting from his horse, he intimated that he was ready to follow his captors. "'Spoken like a man,' cried he, whom they addressed as Alan. "'Jack Cade will be right glad of such a recruit. Blood and carrion, but thou hast the thews of a young ox, and I swear by the haft of my sword that it might have gone ill with some of us hadst thou not listened to reason.' "'Nay, not so good, Alan, not so,' squeaked a very small man, who had remained in the background while there was any prospect of a fray, but who now came pushing to the front. Hadst thou been alone, it might indeed have been so, perchance, but an expert swordsman can disarm at pleasure such a one as this young knight. Well, I remember in the palatinate how I clove to the chin even such another, the Baron von Slogstaff. He struck at me, Look ye so, but I with buckler and blade did, as one might say, deflect it, and then countering in cart, I returned in tears, and so, St. Agnes save us, who comes here? The apparition, which frightened the loquacious little man, was sufficiently strange to cause a qualm, even in the bosom of the night. Through the darkness there loomed a figure which appeared to be of gigantic size, and a hoarse voice, issuing apparently from some distance above the heads of the party, broke roughly on the silence of the night. Now out upon thee, Thomas Allen, and foul be thy fate, if thou hast abandoned thy post without good and sufficient cause. By St. Anselm of the Holy Grove, thou hast best have never been born then rouse my spleen this night. Wherefore is it that you and your men are trailing over the moor like a flock of geese when Michaelmas is near? Good captain, said Alan, doffing his bonnet, an example followed by others of the band, we have captured a goodly youth who was pricking it along the London road. Methought that some word of thanks were meet reward for such service, rather than taunt or threat. "'Nay, take it not to heart, bold Alan,' exclaimed their leader, who was none other 
than the great Jack Cade himself. Thou knowest of old that my temper is somewhat choleric, and my tongue not greased with that ungent which oils the mouths of the lips-serving lords of the land. And you, he continued, turning suddenly upon our hero, are you ready to join the great cause which will make England what it was when the learned Alfred reigned in the land? Sounds, man, speak out, and pick not your phrases. I am ready to do aught which may become a knight and a gentleman, said the soldier stoutly. Taxes shall be swept away, cried Cade excitedly. The impost and the anpost, the tithe and the hundred tax, the poor man's salt box and flour bin shall be as free as the nobleman's cellar. Ha, ah, what sayest thou? It is but just, said our hero. Aye, but they give us such justice as the falcon gives the leveret, roared the orator. Down with them, I say, down with every man of them. Noble and judge, priest and king, down with them all. Nay, said Sir Overbeck Wells, drawing himself up to his full height and laying his hand upon the hilt of his sword. There I cannot follow thee, but must rather defy thee as a traitor and a faineant. And seeing that thou art no true man, but one who would usurp the rights of our master the king, who may the virgin protect. At these bold words and the defiance which they conveyed, the rebels seemed for a moment utterly bewildered. But encouraged by the hoarse shout of their leader, they brandished their weapons and prepared to fall upon the knight, who placed himself in a posture for defense and awaited their attack. There now, cried Sir Walter, rubbing his hands and chuckling, I've put the child in a pretty warm corner, and we'll see which of you moderns can take him out of it. Ne'er a word more will you get from me to help him one way or the other. You try your hand, James, cried several voices, and the author in question had got so far as to make an allusion to a solitary horseman who was approaching when he was interrupted by a tall gentleman, a little further down, with a slight stutter and a very nervous manner. Excuse me, he said, but I fancy that I may be able to do something here. Some of my humble productions have been said to excel Sir Walter at his best, and I was undoubtedly stronger all round. I could picture modern society as well as ancient, and as to my plays, why Shakespeare never came near. The Lady of Lyons's popularity. There is this little thing. Here he rummaged among a great pile of paper in front of him. Ah, that's a report of mine when I was in India. Here it is. No. This is one of my speeches in the house. And this is my criticism on Tennyson. Didn't I warm him up? I can't find what I wanted, but of course you have read them all. Rainsay and Harold and the last of the barons. Every schoolboy knows them by heart. As poor Macaulay would have said, allow me to give you a sample. In spite of the gallant knight's valiant resistance, the combat was too unequal to be sustained. His sword was broken by a slash from a brown bill, and he was borne to the ground. He expected immediate death, but such did not seem to be the intention of the ruffians who had captured him. He was placed upon the back of his own charger and borne, 
bound hand and foot over the trackless moor, in the fastness of which the rebels secreted themselves. In the depths of these wilds there stood a stone building, which had once been a farmhouse, but having been for some reason abandoned, had fallen into ruin, and now had become the headquarters of Cade and his men. A large cowhouse near the farm had been utilized as sleeping quarters, and some rough attempts had been made to shield the principal room of the main building from the weather by stopping up the gapping apertures in the walls. In this apartment was spread out a rough meal for the returning rebels, and our hero was thrown, still bound, into an empty outhouse, there to await his fate. Sir Walter had been listening with the greatest impatience to Bulwer Lytton's narrative, but when it had reached this point, he broke in impatiently. "'We want a touch of your own style, man,' he said. "'The animal, magnetico, electro, hysterical, biological, mysterious sort of story is all your own. But at present you are just a poor copy of myself and nothing more.' There was a murmur of assent from the company, and Defoe remarked, "'Truly, Master Lytton, there is a plaguery resemblance in the style.' which may indeed be but a chance, and yet methinks it sufficiently marked to warrant such words as our friend hath used. "'Perhaps you will think that this is imitation also,' said Lytton bitterly, and leaning back in his chair, with a morose countenance, he continued the narrative in this way. Our unfortunate hero had hardly stretched himself upon the straw with which his dungeon was littered, when a secret door opened in the wall, and a venerable old man swept majestically into the apartment. The prisoner gazed upon him with astonishment, not unmixed with awe, for on his broad brow was printed the seal of much knowledge, such knowledge as is not granted to the Son of Man to know. He was clad in a long white robe, crossed and checkered with mystic devices in the Arabic character while a high scarlet tiara, marked with a square and circle, enhanced his venerable appearance. My son, he said, turning his piercing and yet dreamy gaze upon Sir Overbeck, all things lead to nothing, and nothing is the foundation of all things. Cosmos is impenetrable. Why, then, should we exist? Astounded at this weighty query, and at the philosophic demeanor of his visitor, our hero made shift to bid him welcome, and to demand his name and quality. As the old man answered him, his voice rose and fell in musical cadences, like the sighing of the east wind, while an ethereal and aromatic vapor pervaded the apartment. "'I am the eternal non-ego,' he answered. "'I am the concentrated negative, the everlasting essence of nothing.' You see in me that which existed before the beginning of matter, many years before the commencement of time. I am the algebraic X, which represents the infinite divisibility of a finite particle. Sir Overbeck felt a shudder, as though an ice-cold hand had been placed upon his brow. What is your message? he whispered, falling prostrate before his mysterious visitor to tell you that the eternities beget chaos, and that the immensities are at the mercy 
of the divine, anarchy. Infinitude crouches before a personality. The mercurial essence is the prime mover in spirituality, and the thinker is powerless before the pulsating inanity. The cosmical procession is terminated only by the unknowable and unpronounceable. May I ask, Mr. Smollett, what you find to laugh at? Gadzooks, master, cried Smollett, who had been sniggering for some time back. It seems to me that there is little danger of anyone venturing to dispute that style with you. It is all your own, murmured Sir Walter. And very pretty, too, quoth Lord Stern, with a malignant grin. Pray, sir, what language do you call it? Lighton was so enraged at these remarks, and at the favor with which they appeared to be received, that he endeavored to stutter out some reply, and then, losing control of himself completely, picked up all his loose papers and strode out of the room, dropping pamphlets and speeches at every step. The incident amused the company so much that they laughed for several minutes without cessation. Gradually the sound of their laughter sounded more and more harshly in my ears. The lights on the table grew dim, and the company more misty, until they and their symposium vanished away altogether. I was sitting before the embers of what had been a roaring fire, but was now little more than a heap of gray ashes, and the merry laughter of the august company had changed to the recriminations of my wife, who was shaking me violently by the shoulder and exhorting me to choose some more seasonable spot for my slumbers. So ended the wondrous adventures of Master Cyprian Overbeck Wells. But I still live in the hopes that in some future dream the great masters may themselves finish that which they have begun. End of section 19